0: Hi, I'm Toby Oliver and you're listening to The Cinematography Podcast.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California are your hosts, Ben Rock, and Ilya Friedman.
2: Hey, Ilya, how are you doing?
3: <laughs> I'm doing really good for the third time, <laughs> which no one else got to uh, understand, but uh, you started talking and I had not started recording, so good times.
2: Story of my life. <laughs> anyway, I don't even know what that means. So
3: <laughs> you know who's on the show today? I, I do, and I'm super jealous because you got to do an awesome interview with Toby Oliver, and I was not there. Toby Oliver quite an amazing guy get out get out is incredible it was probably it was like maybe my best uh, my pick for you know one of the best movies of the year
2: it was a damn fine movie and uh he's he's awesome and i can't wait to get into the interview but before we do that for our george Foyt close focus segment i had an idea that's a little out of the box whoa you with an idea (laughs) okay i'm (laughs) I'm buckling up i'm strapping in okay uh so we get this chainsaw no (laughs) lying So I I, I keep, uh, and honestly, uh, if you're listening to the sound of my voice and you have ideas for close focus that don't have to do with COVID-19, I am all ears and so is Ilya because really, I'd love to get away from it. It's something we have to talk about all day long and think about it. I don't want to talk about it on the podcast all the time, but I feel like in the entertainment business, it's also everything is orienting itself around it. So I have a pitch because you have a company where you make products. Right. We do.
3: We we, we actually make some from, from scratch. We get the components, the blocks of, of metal and screws, <laughs> and we, we actually turn them into things. That, that does happen from time to time.
2: Okay. So I have a pitch for a product okay. that I think would be a huge winner as we move back into production. I can't wait. I'm ready. Pitch me. All right. So here's the idea. When we start going back into production, and I'm talking about every level of production, so I'm including basic ENG-style news gathering and people making reality shows and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm also uh, scaling all the way up to episodic television to movies because all of these things are going to go back into production eventually. And from all the evidence that I keep hearing, it's unlikely that we're going to have a vaccine even within the 18 months that Dr. Fauci had predicted uh, it, it could be years. It could be a lot longer. All right. So, so wait a second.
3: Let me let me let me guess. Is it uh, Mars attack style glass or plastic helmets that we all wear so that we <laughs>
2: fishball helmets.
3: Some some no. sort of like inflatable, you know, a plastic bag that goes over, you know, looks like you've been been crowned Queen of England. No. What 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 is no, it? No, it 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 is not that. Got it.
2: Here's what it is. I think that as we start going back, we're going to need to have kits Basically, think of it like a first aid kit that you would have on any set of any size. Imagine it's like we have a crew of, you know, indie movie. So we have 25 crew, we have X number of cast, and basically this is a service and a product where you will get all the masks, all the gloves, all the hand sanitizer, spray bottles of bleach, you'll have videos that come with it that kind of walk everybody through the proper procedures you know how to handle a set with social distancing when in fact you can't be socially distanced sometimes. Sometimes you need to get a close up shot on a wide angle lens and the camera operator is going to be three feet away from the actor. But basically it would be a protocol and sort of like a first aid kit but way more comprehensive. It would be several boxes and it would go out every day to every set that needed it. And even as new tools. Tools arrive, so. For instance, right now, testing isn't widely available, but as testing becomes available, that's a thing that you could offer. Like, we can send you X number of COVID kits, or if we have to send a medic to do it, we can, like, arrange to have the person who can go to your set and do that. Um, you know, I'm thinking about My Wife Works on House Hunters. You know, those, those shows, they shoot with a tiny crew where it's, like, a camera operator, a sound person, maybe one other person, and a, and a director, and then the people on, on camera. So you would need less for some for a shoot like that. You'd obviously need more for a giant Marvel film. So what do you think of my product idea?
3: Okay. What part was the product? The product was the hand sanitizer and the, uh, the, the white
2: product is basically a box, sort of like a first aid thing. It's
3: a first aid, kit, every- but it's all COVID.
2: More or less, yes. It's uh, COVID specific stuff. So it's masks, it's gloves, it's hand sanitizer, it's spray bottles with uh, bleach solution in them. It's paper towels. It's everything you need to kind of make whatever room you're going into COVID safe to Uh, work in and the people are safe to work with it.
3: I got it. Okay. Brain swabs. You've got brain swabs. You got swabs that go up your nose, swab the brain test your test, your COVID. You've got your definitely your, brain swabs. Okay. Got it. Uh, I think it's great, but our, our commander in chief was talking about how there's like a five minute test. Now that would mean that yeah. these kits would need like that five minute test. You'd have to be able to somehow like, you know, pull out a swab, shove it in the solution and it's going to turn, yeah. you know, are you Are going to get a, po- a positive or a negative? You're going to, it's going to turn purple. It's going to do, you know, clear blue easy. It's going to do the uh, pregnancy test of, of well, COVID. So.
2: Obviously, I don't think those things are readily available right now for us to go out and get. But by the time production goes up, like I keep hearing estimates like a friend of mine works on a regular old TV show and he's. Talent on it, and he's in a pretty privileged position that he he hears, you know, the, when people plan on on going back. And I asked him, when do you think you're going back? And he said the latest estimate they got was September. Mm-hmm. Now they would be shooting the show right now, mm-hmm. and they all got shut down mid shoot, and so they're thinking end of the summer possibly September, that they would be back. So I feel like whatever is available in September, like what, like right now uh, at the grocery store, you can get paper towels and toilet paper a little bit more easily than you could a month ago. And by the end of the summer, hopefully it'll be business as usual when it comes to stuff like that. But uh, as far as tests go, obviously the test, like only right now can you get, can anyone in California get tested, you know, and, and that's a relatively recent development only happened a few days
3: ago. I got tested. Did you? Yep. I'm negative.
2: So assuming that this is the kind of product that would scale with what was available to do the testing or or whatever it was that you needed to do, what do you think are the considerations that one would have to have to build that kit? And also, like, what do you think should be in that kit?
3: Wow. Uh, That's a great question. I'm going to say that it probably needs to have some sort of handy carrying case. So it really is sort of like your... doctor's bag kit sort of yeah. thing so that uh you you break it open and then voila there's everything there but probably a um infrared thermometer i'm thinking like a thermometer. big rolling
2: pelican cases like a big rolling ass pelican case yeah.
3: yeah yeah that that would work i think you're gonna need like the major dispenser of hand sanitizer you're gonna need a lot of latex gloves or some sort of uh you know non-latex latex latex gloves for for lack of a better description you're going to need probably some masks some n95 masks you know god forbid someone on your production does test positive the first thing you're probably going to do is put a mask on that person keep them from infecting other people well Uh, you'd send them home well i mean you'd put a mask on them and send them home so you you, you you would you'd say okay don't stand here another second here put this thing on and goodbye so yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting pitch. I think that undoubtedly somebody will do this. Maybe, maybe it should be you. I mean, maybe that—that that is a, there is a business opportunity there. Uh, You'd have to convince everyone that your kit is the kit to get. And I think that you would have to do a really good job in having it be comprehensive that everything's in there. And you might need multiples of those on every set. Every unit's going to need that and it's going to need to be administered by somebody. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely need for it. And this is assuming that people are willing to, you know, potentially risk their lives to go back to work and uh, not have something in place. And I'm not saying that there aren't people who won't do that. I just don't know what the reality is going to be in three months' time. Uh, everything here is day, uh, by, no, day I, by day. So, so yeah. Uh,
2: um, I agree. But but I also think that no matter when we go back, we're going to need this. And again, assuming that there isn't a vaccine, I mean, even on the most optimistic timelines, there won't be a vaccine probably until, like, late next summer. So, it would still, you're, there's still going to be some degree of risk, even if it's rather mitigated.
3: Yeah. And that might be the world that we go into. We might be going into a world where we say, there is going to be significant risk with uh, I mean let me tell you filmmaking even though it should be a risk free activity has never been uh, free of risk and I heard a harrowing story today of someone who died on set falling off a ladder I mean it's like oh I know it's it's terrible that should never happen but accidents happen things like that do happen it's it's horrendous but um,
2: well accidents happen and you can't I mean like you can do you can do everything you can do to prevent accidents but yes of course
3: but if someone falls off a ladder there, there probably could have been a scissor lift there probably could have been something else that was that was set up for them there probably was a safer way it's, I, I don't know what well, the, the scenario it, but i'm assuming that's the case
2: it's an interesting thing to to think about like i remember when i went to uh the the first film program i went to was the valencia community college film program and our teacher when i started was a guy named michael corbett And Michael, on all of our call sheets, uh, the first line at the top said safety first. And the thing he said, I think before we even started our first class, was like, filmmaking is weird and you're going to go into odd places and you're going to want to do things to get the coolest shots you can get. And you're going to want to, you know, stick yourself out there and just remember, no shot is good enough to hurt somebody Mm. like. No, no, Like if it's worth getting, it's worth figuring out how to do it safely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Does that mean that in the era of COVID-19 that it's impossible to do it safely? Because obviously forever you could have caught a disease. COVID is especially pernicious, asymptomatic often, and more deadly than, than things like flu and, and the obviously the common cold. But is going on a film set at all a risk? Or are we able to use precautions like this to mitigate that risk to the point where it's not significant enough to stop one from working?
3: I, I don't really know the answer to that, but I think that we've all worked on a set where it wasn't safety first, even though it should have been. Mm-hmm. It, was, oh, it sure. was more like safety third. Safety third. First is like, you know, lunch. Second is like rushing. And then third was safety. <laughs> so it was, yes, safety third. Um, we're going to have to wait and see. I, I think that more responsible people will will want to uh, not put people's lives at risk. There might be economic pressures which prevent that so i don't know we're gonna we're gonna find out what happens
2: so to drill down on my product pitch to you yeah do you think that the product idea is kind of immoral in that it's creating a false sense of safety around something that's inherently dangerous yes
3: copy uh i don't think that any amount of hand sanitizer at least as of you know today
2: yeah. I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about when we start for real going back and we think it's safe. So that I'm I'm talking possibly September. No,
3: I know. I'm just t- telling you that my brain as of today, my brain as today says mm, probably not. But at the same time. I might have feel completely different when we have only a tiny handful of people who are catching it and spreading it. Maybe I feel completely different. I feel like that, you know, truly the 99.9% of people out there are safe and that that's a totally prudent necessary thing that we should have, but is all just precautionary anyway, because the chances of anyone getting it is super slim. It could be, that could be the case in, in a few months. I, I, I don't know as of today.
2: Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this. Like I'm sure you've been on a set where there was lots of blank fire, Sure. And when there's, for people who haven't experienced that, it's like everything slows down. Plexiglass gets put up around the cameraman if they're, if they're going to be close to, or the camera operators if they're going to be close to the blank fire. Uh, plywood is taken out. Somebody hands out earplugs to everyone in the crew and those are disposable. You know, you change them out every time you do it. Everyone, is, it is explained to everyone what's going to happen. So everyone can be out of the line of fire and it can be completely safe and it eats up a lot of time. But, it just kind of becomes the precautionary way that you deal with gunfire. And it's how you prevent there from being accidents. And I guess I'm thinking sort of in those terms and saying, how could we create that system for just regular shooting so that we prevent people from breathing in air droplets from each other and getting COVID and and, and dying?
3: Yeah. I I don't know if people should be back on sets until that's solved but i don't know if a rolling pelican case full of uh sanitizing goodies will actually make make a difference for that I mean at least uh, like i said as of today in may maybe in september four months from now'll feel completely different but right now i'd say i think that's probably premature probably can't okay yeah so so cool i mean well, that that's that's my two cents i have I have no idea
2: no that's why i wanted to talk to you about it on here as a close focus because i think you know even though i I, I think both of us would really love to, you know, talk about the Academy or whatever, some new streaming platform. You know, the, the news has been pretty slow in terms of what's going on in the entertainment business and uh, I was listening to Film Week from KPCC, the uh, the podcast where they inter- review movies, and they took a few weeks off and then they came back and now they're reviewing stuff that's being released straight to VOD, which is kind of cool. Nice. I'm just, maybe I'm just trying to mitigate the depression of <laughs> knowing that we're not going to be shooting anything or watching it in a theater for a while.
3: Yeah, I think that's true. But you know what? Uh, the more time goes by, the actually, the more I'm convinced that this isn't the new normal and that uh, normalcy will return and that we will get through this how long it takes i have no idea but i definitely feel it heading that way but uh, hey let's get uh let's get toby oliver in here let's uh let you had a, a fantastic conversation with him the other day and i can't wait no, to hear it
2: he's he's a wonderful guy he's got a great story and uh interestingly i think our third or fourth australian interview in in a short period of time
3: we're, we're, we're taking over australia australia we got a lot of downloads from there they they really love it the aussies love us so uh yeah i, I think that it only makes sense that we we invite a bunch of them in to, to come talk to us.
2: Well, he's awesome. Keep looking out for him. He's, his career is on an upward trajectory. Here is Toby Oliver.
1: The Cinematography Podcast Interview.
2: All right. So I'm here on uh, one of our uh, cinematography Zoom sessions. We should just call them the Zoom sessions with uh, cinematographer Toby Oliver. Amazing, amazing cinematographer. Thank you so much for coming out or for... <laughs> For coming onto our zoom
0: it's a pleasure
2: yeah no i know we're, we're we've been really excited to get you on i'm uh, obviously i'm a if you've listened to the podcast you know i'm a giant genre fan so uh, a lot of your horror work is stuff that really speaks to me and obviously i think get out is uh w- one of those movies that was a great movie all by itself and then happened to step right into the zeitgeist yes it did <laughs> and uh i think it it benefited from other conditions in the world that raised its its profile, uh, rightfully so, though, because it's it's a it's a just a wonderful piece of filmmaking.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of about the timing, wasn't it? Yeah, that uh, that that landed really, in many ways. But we will get to that later.
2: First, the first question I ask everyone when you're reading a script: What is it that you see as a DP when you when you're looking at it? When you're thinking about what it's going to look like, do you see it in pictures? Do you see it in lighting? What's the thing you see as you read a script?
0: Well, the very first time I read a script, um, I do look for those things. I am aware of those things like what, how, how the, in the writing do they paint the picture of how it looks or the environment that these characters are in. Uh, but that's kind of secondary. The very first time that I read a, a screenplay, I'm really just interested, is this a story that speaks to me in some way? Is this, is this a story mm-hmm. that has got some substance to it? is this a story that has a dynamic energy going through it, whether it be character-based or action-based or, or genre and maybe horror, it may be a thriller? I mean, does it work? In my mind, do I read this and go, yeah, this, is, this, is, this could be cool? Now, though, I will make a decision about whether I want to be involved in that project after I read it that first time. In terms of ex- how it would be shot or how it would be visualised, that's sort of, for me, it's the, that's the second tier. Basically, in a in a in a nutshell, I'm trying to decide, Is it good first?
2: Yeah. Is it something that
0: I could possibly, I could actually feel good about being involved with? Um, in the case of a comedy, is it funny? And then, okay, how can we play with? Uh, as a cinematographer, how could we approach this? And how could it look good? Or how could it be interesting, dynamic, and so on in a visual sense? And that would be the second tier thing. But I'm not. Don't get too caught up in that at the beginning, because sometimes. Who knows, it might be a project that's maybe very static and maybe visually there's not actually anything that interesting about the scenario that's painted within that story. But it could be the most incredible story, human story, about um, a person or a group Mm -hmm. of people. And so that would be enough to get me sort of interested because, you know, I'm a filmmaker, storyteller at heart as well and uh, even though you're doing it with images primarily, it's, it's that strength of the experience uh, that you wanna be involved with rather than just the, the pictures.
2: Are there like specific uh, kind of go-to techniques or, or ways that you go about, like let's say you, you have a script and you've decided you're gonna work on it or you know, you've been hired to work on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a way that you go about kind of breaking it down to create the language, the visual language of the, of the project itself?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the very first thing is often, and often this is part of the pitch to get the project, and I'm sure many DPs are in this, uh, do the same thing, is creating a, a book of references or a lookbook or a deck, uh, which is a pretty mm-hmm. common process. But that doing that process in itself helps you break down how you might see this, this project. So with other references from, other, from photography or from art or from other films that you use uh, and sort of collate together Mm-hmm. that's sort of starting, that starts to build a kind of a visual idea. Now, this, you might, this, this lookbook might be something you create before you even talk to the director about the project. So it's sort yeah. of flying a little bit by the seat of your pants in terms of what the director wants to do. But often they'll want to see something from you even before, you know, you've spoken to them. So really that's, that gives you, that's the starting point. So go- going through that process gives you the starting point for where you're going to take it further.
2: Is it the kind of thing if you're if you're going to show it to the director before you've even spoken to them? Is it the kind of thing where like if you're being considered for a project, you might build that lookbook and make it part of your pitch for why you want to shoot the film?
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely, it is. I mean, you're often not always, but you're sometimes you're actually asked to bring a lookbook to the very first meeting. Mm-hmm. But if you even if you're not asked, it's kind of behoves you, especially these days, to do that especially is more often than not it's 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 people you've never worked with before so it could yeah. be a director you're meeting for the for the first time or if not the first time certainly the first time you're having you're pitching a project to them and they'd love to see something visual from the from the potential dp now the danger with that is, is of course you go off and make a plan you've got all these great references maybe that's all Wes Anderson say it's all these kooky sort of comic comic and kind of very structured visuals uh, lots of colour, and you might be deciding, oh, that's, I think that's how this movie should look. And then you, you get in there with the director and the director <laughs> says, oh, yeah, no, I really hate Wes Anderson. I hate that look. It's so contrived, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, you're, and you, you're, you're boned then. You're just like, that's it. So what the tricky thing is going into that, that initial meeting and you've got your sort of lookbook in your bag, but you don't pull that out and, and show that on it, whether you're showing it on an iPad or whatever. You don't do that first. You just let the director yeah. talk. And then hopefully that there's some links with what they kind of see as their vision, however embryonic that might be, with the stuff you've got. And if that's the case, then you can, you can find some common ground and then that can really get the ball rolling, which is great. And if nothing is, if the director's like totally, oh, no, we've, I've, I've been into this project for six years and I see it like totally the opposite, then maybe you don't. Pull out your lookbook. Maybe it's you're totally inappropriate. <laughs> you know, that'd be a, that it would be a bummer. I think I've done that once. I think I have been in a situation where I've had where I've done that. I've, about you know what? Well, don't, don't worry about that. I'm, yeah, it's that's kind of not really relevant. <laughs> you know, can't remember if I got that project. I don't think I did get it. But it's um, <laughs> yes, it's kind of like um. Uh, you, you kind of have to play that a little bit by ear. That can be a little tricky because often it's that first meeting where you've kind of meeting the director cold, All um, you've had is read the, the screenplay. Maybe if you're lucky, you've seen a pitch document or a lookbook that the directors put together, giving you a yeah. sense of what they think. So I, what I often do, especially if it's a director I don't know, is just research the director, look at their films, look them up on IMDb, look at look for interviews. Or podcasts that they might have done, like seriously, mm-hmm. and watch them on YouTube. Oh, that's what that's how they talk, and that's what they think, and blah blah blah. So you go in there with as much information as you can with the person you're meeting, because that half hour or hour, hopefully, that you've got, that's that's the key whether you get the job or not. That's they make their mind up there and then, depending on who else they're going to see as well. So it's it's super important. And uh, if if that's been successful and you, you win the job and you did show them the lookbook, then the lookbook is the base the very the very bones or the basis of where you can go from there for the for the look of the rest of the project, hopefully. And you can just build on that. So you've
2: made, I think, quite a name for yourself in genre, not exclusively doing genre films, but uh, you know, like I, I sort of have genre vision when I'm when I'm looking at stuff and I see, you know, some some horror horror stuff on somebody's uh, resume and, and even more recently, you know, like a lot of people break in making a low budget horror or whatever, but you know, you've, you've done a lot of the, a lot of newer horror stuff. Uh, yeah. was that always, it was genre a direction that you were always kind of pointed towards or is that just like you, you got one and you did okay and, and, and you built on it and, and, and then you found yeah. yourself as someone who did a lot of it.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, my career is a little different maybe from someone who's sort of grew up in the US. Because I'm Mm -hmm. originally from Australia, um, I had a pretty long career in Australia, nearly 20 years, I guess, as a DP or a crew member and so on, before I ever came of, uh, moved, uh, immigrated here to the United States. And um, really the genre work only kind of really started in the last couple of years when I was in Australia and then it continued when I came to the to the US before that it was much more varied and genre for a long time in Australia especially if you go back say 15 20 years ago Mm -hmm. kind of a little bit of a dirty word I mean in Australia for those who don't know it's a largely government subsidized film industry and the television as well so if the people who are in government who are you know making decisions on what gets financed and what doesn't if they're not really genre fans then there won't be any genre Mm -hmm. because there's not very much of a private financial structure to get things made. So genre wasn't really something that was very often made in Australia and it was only towards the end of my time there uh, I did a movie called Wolf Creek 2 with a director called Greg McLean Um, and Mm -hmm. that was the sequel to his original Wolf Creek which was quite a, quite a little bit of a, a hit of the Outback Killer.
2: Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, so I did the sequel, uh, which was quite a few years later. It was made like seven years later or something. That was my first horror movie really. I mean I've done, did thrillers and I've done sort of uh, thriller TV shows but never really horror, straight out horror. And it hadn't. It wasn't a very popular sort of genre in Australia for a long time. It is, it is much more it- popular now. It's funny because uh, th- when I think yeah. of
2: genres, uh, like and when I think of Australian films, at least the ones that, that I managed to see, you know, in film school and growing up and stuff, a lot of them are, well, they're action films, but there are a lot of genre films. Yeah, out I mean, Australia. if you go
0: back to the Mad Max sort of uh, movies, yeah. they're obviously, you know, action sci-fi genre sort of dystopian mm-hmm. future type movies, but they were um, largely made um, out of that funding system. When George, George Miller made the original Mad Max that wasn't part of that, You made it outside of that system because you couldn't get those films, kind of films made within that, system, within that funding system. So the, the original Mad Max was incredibly low budget uh, because of that. So anyway, for me, I did that movie, Wolf Creek 2, and then when I came to the United States, I had the opportunity to work with the same director again, Greg McLean, on a Blumhouse movie which was called The Darkness
2: there's something I'm always interested in in how honestly how anyone does this actors do it in their own way cinematographers do it directors do it in their own way but that's like to know where you are in the story and to know how you're telling that part of the story like if you have a visual arc Let's Mm. say, for instance, you're shooting on wider lenses at the beginning of the Mm -hmm. movie and tight, you know, longer lenses at the Mm. end, or you're introducing the color green in the backlight or whatever. Mm. Like, how do you keep, is there a way that you keep track of how you, how you've constructed those things? Because sometimes the director's in on that some, I'm assuming a lot of times the director has, you know, is is just sort of like, yeah, do it.
0: Yeah, I mean that's some, when you, when you have those kind of things, it's exciting because you you're you you know you've got a visual arc that's maybe following the character's arc and the story arc, and you've got your own. Sometimes the director's more aware of it than others. Sometimes they're like, yeah, do whatever you like in terms of that. We, I don't mind that you you know you're mm-hmm. going to start off blue and end up red, or what, um, but, and of course the whole thing's always shot totally usually pretty much out of order so you've got to keep track of all of that stuff in your own mind sometimes it's written down with notes to trigger memory sometimes i'll have a break a dp breakdown of a of a a movie more so Mm -hmm. in a movie rather than a tv show um where key little creative notes like that are actually sort of in there but usually it's just about having enough prep time hopefully that you go over (laughs) this stuff so many times with talking with discussions with the director and location scouting and and that it's all just kind of seeps into your brain. And so when you know you're in a particular location, it's like, oh, yeah, that's that part of the film and we should be into the pastels and colours now. I mean, we had, uh, there was a movie I shot a little while back called The Dirt, which was the story of uh, Motley Crue, uh, the Motley Crue movie, which was on on Netflix. Oh, yes. Um, And that was a sort of took over a period of years that um, had a very pretty variable critical response to that movie, I have to say. But <laughs> we were trying to do a few things with colour and stuff. We started off you know, in the early 80s with a, quite a distinct colour palette and this is something I worked with the designer quite closely. And then as the movie went on and at certain points in the character's life it all went sort of more pastelly and stuff it was a bit related to the time but also related to their state of minds and where they were sort of coming from. And um, how do we keep track of that? Well, you just sort of put it into your head where these scenes are. And I'd often, sometimes I'd be asking the script supervisor, so this scene, what year is this supposed to be be in? And they'd sort of say, oh, we're not quite sure, but it's about sort of 89 or something. And go, okay, Mm -hmm. all right. (laughs) So in 89, this is kind of what, the colour we should be at and the sort of it should be a little more contrast here we we're a bit softer and sort of more smoky in the beginning so a bit up until about 84 and so you'd have those kind of things in your head especially doing something like that which is a a um sort of biopic type situation mm-hmm. but really it's it's just going it's really just talking about it and and sinking it in if you have a really if you just got to land somewhere with no prep and go straight into something it's you're always chasing your tail with that you just you can often can not and i've had to be in that situation too sometimes um and you've just got to try and wing it um and it's just can be a bit messy but it's great when you've got i had a lot of prep on that movie and that was really great for us to fine tune all these timelines and and it's color acts and contrast acts and stuff.
2: I have a, a random question about that movie too when dealing with a movie where you're dealing with uh, live performance within the movie. Mm. Uh, how much do you as a cinematographer work to light the concerts? Like concert lighting is kind of its own its own animal and there's you know people who specialize in that. So do you oversee that or do you hire somebody who does concert lighting to make the concert lighting look like concert lighting and then give them sort of your rules to lay on top of it. it.
0: Interesting. We had, I guess we didn't hire anyone special to do the concert lighting, but we spent quite a lot of time and I did this also with Melanie Jones, the designer, because she had to build the the stage, all the staging, that researching the original Motley Crue videos, luckily there's quite a bit of video, some of it very super bad quality of their early days, like you can barely see it, but it gives you a sense of what it looked like. Uh, And we we did quite a bit of research reviewing that stuff and say, okay, so this is how it should look or something like this if we're doing a 1982 performance or 81 performance. It should be pretty stark, pretty ugly, and not a lot of finesse. And then later on they've got giant stadium stage shows and we we didn't have the budget to do multiple shows like that, so we had a two-day shoot where we just set up in in an indoor stadium Mm-hmm. Um, and set up a typical kind of nineteen late 1980s Motley Crue sort of staging setup, which was a massive, it was the biggest by far the biggest couple of days on the on the shoot. The key to that was I, I think my gaffer um, was great, James O'Neill, and he was a uh, coming to me. I think it was maybe a, his in terms of his movies as a gaffer, maybe only his third movie as a gaffer, but he had. Had years of experience as a second unit gaffer on very large show productions, and so he brought a wealth of experience on much bigger shows than what the, even the dirt was, and knew the people to talk to about okay, how do we set up a giant rock and roll rig, and yeah. how do we go about setting up you know eight hundred park hands the way that they did it in in those days. We're pretty we're actually quite stri- pretty strict to the actual using the real. Um, fixtures that they would have had, yeah. those sort of lights that wouldn't have been around, in, that, in you know, in that time. And the other key was having a, a really good programmer on the console yeah. who had that kind of, who had a bit of rock and roll experience as well, and he did, as well as film experience. And so having that person was really, really key. But again, you know, best laid plans. I mean, with that giant two-day um, stadium shoot, we were supposed <laughs> to have like a nearly a full day, like six-hour, eight-hour rehearsal period the day before to figure out all the lighting cues and do all of this stuff, which, which before that, you know, because you've had a really limited time because there's a real a real venue, there's a real stadium in New, New Orleans. So it's not like you can be there a week beforehand. They, they bump it in. It's like a real show. We bumped yeah, it yeah. in on the weekend and then bang on Monday we're shooting. And, of course, it took way longer to bump it in than everyone hoped. And um, because the other, show, I think the show bumping out was a little late, the uh-huh. the thing, and so <laughs> our um, our light really, I mean, all the lights were up, but only by the end of Sunday, and so the prelight had to happen just before we started shooting on the on the actual day. So that yeah, was I a su-
2: real bummer. I assume a venue like that has some kind of repertory plot, and they probably always no, did. it's Could, it's, no? it's
0: interesting, it's it's. Com- blank it's completely empty it's really because sometimes it's used just for basketball and other times it's used for rock concerts and so we have to put in everything like the grid and the pipes and everything oh, to hang everything a whole lot yeah oh, and it has wow. to all go in um we had like a the window we had was like 18 uh, less a bit over 12 hours to get it in and of course it took longer yeah i mean that's what they yeah. do in rock and roll they just move into these things that are just an empty shell i've I've hung those kinds of things
2: in in theater i've not done it in uh yeah uh, yeah but it's
0: something i was expecting like you walk in there's already grids and things to plug into and it's all all already wired up and you know half pre-programmed as you say but nothing could be further from the truth interesting and so it was sort of like apparently that's pretty normal so anyway we 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 had much less time to prepare than we hoped i mean it in the end result, it looks fine because it's a movie and it's all cut up and it's all bits and pieces. But if you were actually sitting down and watching our what we'd done as a two-hour concert, you'd think, gee, it's sort of um, <laughs> not quite what we'd what we'd hope. But in the magic of movies, you don't really know. But we really only had like an hour or so to set up all these looks. Once That's everything crazy. was once everything was actually plugged in and ready to go, we we were like, shit, we've got to, you know okay let's quickly oh, figure man. out let's quickly figure out three different looks for the main three main shows we're doing and then try and find some variations within that so
2: yeah oh that's nuts <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh, we were talking earlier about creating like a visual arc I, c- I kind of want to ask you a question and actually our producer Alana Cody is on the line here because she's seen your new show Dead to Me Season 2 so yeah. I'm going to ask you the first question but Alana you can go ahead and go into further detail because you've seen it and I haven't you know when you're talking about in a movie where you're creating an arc from here to there that's a visual arc that's kind of like all baked into it like what you're talking about with uh, with the dirt versus TV which doesn't quite operate on the same on the same story storytelling physics so what's the difference for you doing television versus doing movies where you're not really taking us on a on a visual journey that is not meant to be repeated you're more quality control or are you more quality control for the the look that uh that the producers and 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 the creators of the show want
0: yeah that's a really good question because it it does vary on the show i guess and certainly coming in to do the second season of a show that I wasn't involved at all with the first season. I uh, had nothing to do with it. And so you, you're you coming in and it's you're trying to sort of land in there and prep and try and figure out, okay, so do they want it to look exactly like how it was before? And I'm just, just simply, yeah, like you say, almost quality control and recreating that, that look. Or do they want to take it a bit further and push it because the story is developing a little bit more? Um, and sometimes they're not uh, the showrunner and the writers and the, the producers. They're not actually hundred percent sure themselves um, at that point. And so it can be a little bit of just sort of finding your way with that. And uh, in the case of, dead to me we ended up with a look pretty similar to the look that they had in the first season initially we were sort of taking it a little bit further in one direction and the showrunner Liz Feldman kind of realized nah she didn't really want to deviate too much from where we where we started certainly with the color and the contrast and the sort of the feel of the of the show one thing that they did want to do was kind of I guess try to shoot in a way a little bit more flattering to the leading the two leading actresses in the show Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini Um, so we I sort of made a point of making sure they looked as good as they could given the time constraints that we had and uh, they wanted to to just make that a point that to spend a little bit more time on rather than what they've done in the first season so so other than that it kind of does reflect the first season and we're in many of the same locations and sets have all been we're all rebuilt to be the same mm-hmm. even though we're in a different studio in some ways it's a little bit harder to shoot the second season because because of logistics and the space that we had but in the end i think it looks it looks pretty good. We use the same camera system, but I used different lenses that kind of perhaps were a bit more flattering for the actors. Um, so it's those little changes. I guess I was sort of tinkering around the edges of the look a little bit more to try and make it better rather than reinventing it. Because ultimately the person in control of a movie is usually the director and you've got to work with the director and you're on the same page that you're always both on as you sort of ride through all the different scenes. Uh, with a TV show, the directors come and go and you, you, they're only there for a couple of weeks and then there's a new, brand new director for the next couple of episodes. So it's not so much the director. The directors are there for the coverage and you're working with them closely trying to build the scenes with the shots and the coverage, but not the look of the show. That's something that's decided with the showrunner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really it's about their sort of feeling if they sort of change their mind or think, oh, no, actually I want it to be like the way it was, not so different, then that's kind of where you're... And it took a little bit of adjustment for me, I guess, to be honest, because I'd just been doing movies for the past six years and jumping back into TV is my first US-based TV show. Um, I'd done TV in Australia, but that was obviously a little while back. And it uh, you know, requires a little adjustment. It's a different way of working.
1: Yeah, I was wondering, um, how did you come into the project?
0: Uh, Well, it was fortuitous because there was a project, a movie project I was shooting around the the middle of the year called um, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which Mm. is a a Lionsgate movie, a comedy movie written by Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumlow, the the pair that wrote and starred in Bridesmaids. Oh, sweet. And uh, they're both starring in this. It's a, it's a very, very funny movie. It's from the sort of... The the connection was it's kind of from the same stable. It's from the Gary Sanchez, Gloria Sanchez production stable, which is Will Ferrell and Adam McKay. And um, uh, the dead to me is also uh, Gloria Sanchez Productions. is one of the production companies. So there's a producer there that's pr- sort of provided the link, uh, Jessica Elburn, who was on both. And I was doing Barb and Star. We were shooting that mostly down in Mexico. And I was shooting that and then... She spoke to me and said, uh, oh, look, we've got this second season of Dead to Me coming up and we don't have a DP and are you interested in meeting Liz, meeting the showrunner and the producer? And uh, so I said, sure. And then the timing is what it was. So it was sort of I I basically wrapped on Barb and Star. I think by then we were in New Mexico and um, started on Dead to Me prep three days later in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was completely back to back. So that was, um, you know, that's a little bit of a challenge in itself. But it was, it was great to just keep, keep, um, keep going, you know, <laughs> As well, always. It's tough, and and it's tough in some ways, and good in other ways.
1: And it's also, do you find it different too? Because uh, working on a television show is obviously a lot longer term like is it uh more of a marathon you know rather than like a
0: it is yeah it is I mean this show wasn't too bad because it was uh 10 weeks shooting so it was probably only really a week longer than the movie that particular movie but often shows go from way longer than that But this one was 10 half hour episodes so it was 10 weeks but yeah, it is a bit of a marathon and I think anyone who goes into TV quickly realises that it's a different kind of marathon than, than doing your average size sort of movie or indie movie for sure, which may only be four or five weeks, you know, some movies. So it requires a really a different sort of approach to <laughs> the longevity of yourself on the project in terms of managing your energy levels and you're making sure you get enough sleep and keeping your creativity going and especially you've got one you know you might have a great session with one director and there's a whole brand new director you've got to know for the next weeks yeah. next two weeks and uh hopefully you get on well with them but maybe you because you're shooting the whole season only you only get to prep really with the first director and the other directors you meet a couple of times over lunch or a quick scout And then you're shooting with them, so you kind of got to have your fingers crossed that that's going to work out. because you've got to keep that machine going, you can't stop. You know, you just got to keep up the pace. And there's a lot to shoot television, you know, per day compared to movies. And um, it's quite a different different way of working. You've really got to get into a. In some ways, it's a routine, but you don't want it to be too routine like because you're still trying to be as creative as you can with each situation. So that, that that has its own real challenges for sure.
2: Well, it seems to me also that television today has the expectations, production quality-wise, visually, you know, the way the camera is used and lighting. No different expectations than than a feature film.
0: That's right. I mean, obviously, the storytelling is still is still episodic, but the look and the feel and the kind of shots and the production value that you see on the screen is is got to be feature film quality and that's the expectation certainly with a a Netflix show you know we're shooting it in 4k you can see everything and all the rest of it there's no, it's not like you're off the hook I can just shoot a sort of shoot a little bit shitty no one will know and I can sort of skimp and rush over things but you can't really you got to really put in the attention to the lighting um just as you would for a movie I mean sometimes obviously the scope's different in television you're going to spend a lot more time Perhaps in interiors or on a stage than you would in a movie. Um, but it depends. Some shows are different. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's not necessarily get you out of, you know, get you out of doing the work. It's, it's, it's these days the expectation is extremely high. Um, and you're shooting it with the same equipment you know yeah as well and, and the same style yeah, shooting style. it
1: definitely yeah. looks like a movie even though it's a television series
0: yeah and most a lot of shows on tv have that yeah. movie look now i mean that and that's they're spending a lot of money on the shows and so whilst you definitely you obviously you've got less time per minute of per minute of screen time to shoot so we're shooting days yeah <sighs> You know, it varies. Some days it's only four minutes a day. Sometimes you're shooting closer to ten minutes of screen screen time a day on TV. That depends. On Dead to me it wasn't that bad because they were half hours. But it's in that range. Whereas on the movies, you know, Maybe some days you only shooting him in and half. Yeah.
1: Were there any specific uh, scenes or episodes that were your particular favorite, or?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, it was a look was a fun show to do because the, the t- at the two characters, the two women in the show, they just sort of seem to get into more and more trouble as the as each episode goes on and the, the stakes get higher and higher, which of course you want. So there's you know scenes where they've got to burn the car, they've got to hide the body and there's this whole sequence to do with a freezer in the garage that's pretty cool and then that that's where we started I started leaning a bit on my um, genre background because we had <laughs> we had some sequences these in the first few episodes where it gets pretty creepy you know um and it's got it's and Liz Liz the showrunner was sort of saying oh, look do you do your horror stuff here nice <laughs> do, do you get out stuff and it was like, uh, so we've got this this creepy garage with, you know, little shafts of moonlight and shadows creeping around. So there was quite a, there was, it was the ability to do that was kind of fun, uh, to lean on a bit of that stuff. As well as, you know, there's more comic scenes which have kind of got a much lighter feel in the show. It does, it, 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 it's an interesting show because it goes from stuff that's actually pretty, pretty funny, it's pretty comic and a little bit over the top to stuff that's pretty also you know very emotional it's good it's gut-wrenching a lot of it and then other stuff is just a bit spooky a bit scary
1: yeah i love the show because of the range i really do like that and the acting's amazing mm. so yeah
0: yeah it's yeah. just so good it's so good and the scripts are really yeah. great the dialogue is great and so you know that that bedroom which is one of the reasons i agreed to do the show with no turnaround, like three days after i finished the other thing it's because it's such great quality scripts and the characters were so solid and the actors are so good that you just can't, you, you realize no matter if I did the most plain job ever, it would still be a pretty, pretty good season. So really you're, what you're doing is the icing on top of the, the cake. Um, and I think that's a great place to, to be in too, because you sort of know it's going to be good anyway.
2: So yeah. uh, I definitely wanted to talk. I mean, uh, I, 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 right before we started recording, uh, I, I told you about how much I love Get Out. Oh Yeah. And now that we've we've talked a little bit about you know sort of how you got to where you are, I'm assuming that it had something to do with working with Blumhouse that got you to get out. But when you're talking yeah. about working with a uh, for, with a director, I I believe I'm correct in saying Jordan Peele had not directed a movie before that. Yeah, that's right. And he was primarily known for his awesome comedy. Uh, you know, primarily. That's right. Key and Peele, or the movie Keanu. Yeah. So. What was an amazing hat trick of that, of his career and that movie was that it, it really, I mean, it, it's playing on some levels of satire, but it's a straight up horror movie. So can you tell, talk a little bit about how it came about and how you ended up working on it?
0: Sure. It was that Blumhouse connection, which I'm very grateful for. Thank you, Jason Blum. Mm-hmm. Um, it was because I would shot The Darkness for a, a, couple, a year or two earlier, and uh then blumhouse saw how i'd shot that and they, they were really happy with super low budget and super fast and look good and blah 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 and they got me to do a bunch of pickups and reshoots you know on other other blumhouse movies that had already been edited and then they do another sh- you know reshoot for a few days and so i did about three or four of those so then when jordan was. Jordan's project landed at Blumhouse because it had actually been kicking around for a while at a few different studios and a few different places. But it landed at Blumhouse and Jason Plum decided to do it. Jordan, I think his first choice of DP wasn't available, so he was like, I need somebody. And so Blumhouse put me together with Jordan and we met on the phone the first time we met. Mm -hmm. Um, And I must have made a good impression um, on that first conversation because then it, it sort of went on from there. Um, and I think also, you know, it's, it's you know, so much word of mouth and too, so obviously Blumhouse put in a good word for me and encouraged Jordan to go down that path and I couldn't be more grateful. But, yes, and he needed somebody, and I think Blumhouse knew this as just as much as well, of course, as he needed... He being a first-time director, he hadn't directed anything before, Not just not a movie, he had not directed anything as a oh, director. Oh, wow. uh, So they needed a DP who wasn't just, you know, a young kid out of film school. They needed someone who'd, who'd done a bit beforehand, um, but who was able to kind of do a low-budget film pretty cheap. So it, it's always that balance. And uh, so that's um, how I ended up doing it. So I was definitely there to, to help Jordan through the process, um, and I did, and so did the AD, the first AD, Jared. Denardi, who was also a very experienced AD, had done a lot of Blumhouse work. So between the two of us and the, and the other collaborators, we were chosen specifically not only because we got on well with Jordan and understood what he's trying to do, but because we were, had a certain level of experience that would complement Jordan's inexperience in the sort of, not inexperience in storytelling, but inexperience in the, just the nuts and bolts of feature filmmaking.
2: Whenever I hear that a a movie is being directed by an actor, and I don't mean this as a slight against any actor, but I think about um, Robert Duvall's movie The Apostle, for instance. Uh, Brilliant acting all the way through, but not an especially visual film, not trying to be a visual film. And when I hear about movies being directed by actors, I always have that... That sense of, like, I'm going to go see it. Like, I was a big fan of Key and Peele, and as a horror fan, I wanted to see what what Jordan Peele would do with it. But I was blown away with the visuals of that movie. Now, how were, were those in the script? Were those always in his head and you were pulling them out? Were you helping him figure out things like The Sunken Place, for instance, which is just such an iconic specific, just, a, just a, a brilliant piece of visual storytelling. Can you talk about how any of that came about and how, if you participated in the creation of any of it?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's kind of more the latter. I mean, I think it's a, it's a bit of both. Jordan had some stuff in the script that was quite visual, and the sunken place scene written in the script is kind of fairly, fairly visual, but it's such an abstract concept of going falling down into somebody's head. Uh, into Mm -hmm. their consciousness that it's sort of a hard thing to exactly write down so it's a it's a bit of both he he was pretty good visually and he and certainly with some of these key things what was great about Jordan he was pretty sure once he saw it he was pretty clear about what he wanted or what was going to work or what wasn't going to work what he didn't have is the experience to pre-visualize it in a on set, kind of, you know, in a way where you could pre-plan it and say, "This is how it's going to be." So it really mm-hmm. was up to us to provide the options for Jordan to say, "Well, what about like this? How about like that?" And then mm-hmm. he'd go, "Yeah, yeah, like that way. We'll do it like this." Okay, great. And so with me, it was it was, it was very much a two-way street. It was great because it was a lot of collaboration, and that was it was necessary it was about getting the ideas out of his head uh sometimes it was about making a decision on where the camera is going to be because Jordan wasn't really sure I mean how do I cover a scene with the four people around the table and then a fifth person arrives where's where should we put the camera he wouldn't he that, that's quite that's quite a directorial skill when you get into those kind of scenes and an experienced director comes in and goes yeah yeah we're going to go bang 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 cameras here again. You know, we're going to flip them around two cameras blah, blah blah and it's you know once you've had a lot of directing experience you've can kind of figure that stuff out and your dp will be able to do it um in the case with jordan you wouldn't really know that so that was where i needed to step in and say look normally this is what we would do in this kind of situation and make sure it works and then we'd have that camera there for when he arrives and oh yeah, yeah right and then we can get it in the time because we haven't got all day we've got a pretty tight schedule so you've always got that as well you've got to try and shoot it within the time that's allowed And I think so really with uh, going back to the sunken place, that was an incredible concept that Jordan has that was sort of half on the page, but how do we actually physically do it in camera? We came up, well, I came up with a suggestion that, well, why don't we shoot it like we're doing dry for wet on a stage where you shoot slow motion, like quite super slow motion, Mm -hmm. and to make it feel like it's a sense of it like underwater and then use fans and hang we've got the- we got there when you knew the actor was going to be hanging in a void because that was kind of in the script but we use fans and super slow motion camera to give that sense that he's he's floating in a in a kind of almost liquidy void but we don't really know what it is because it's his subconscious and then it was then enhanced later But Jordan did put little particles sort of floating past um, him to give even more the sense he's underwater, but he's not really underwater because there's no bubbles. He's not, like, breathing. So it was kind of like this sort of in-between version of dry for wet. And so that was really a case of 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 me suggesting some ways that we could actually visualise that to fit in with what he wanted and then where the screen was, the screen was visual effects, where you'd see Missy up on the screen sort of closing his eyes. Yeah. and. On set, I actually had a light in that position, so you'd have that would be the, the source. So we had this big, strong, single source hanging in the, on the set. And, you know, using methods to cheat um, where to create the movement because we couldn't have a giant, um, we couldn't afford to have a giant stunt rig to have him moving around the whole space. So he's hung in one space still. We move the camera around him to give the sense that he's oh. falling past the camera. And that was actually done horizontally. So we just have the camera zooming past him on the dolly as he's sort of falling backwards. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's not actually dropping oh, down smart. on the cable or doing any of that stuff. He's just hanging in one spot uh, because that's a lot more expensive and we were shooting it in a civic centre. We weren't even in a stage. <laughs>
1: so
0: <laughs> You know, you've got to f- often find ways of doing stuff that's... Um, that's kind of a bit more sort of bare bones kind of indie film style and low budget. Um, even in a movie like that it became so successful when we were actually shooting it we didn't have that much money. It was less than a $5 million budget. So we couldn't have a big fancy effects rig and so it was just a case of using some of those kind of little tricks and that ended up with and then Jordan added some stuff in post and the sound and all the rest of it. it ended up being the sunken place.
2: It's so um, iconic. It was, very, so, it so was very
0: collaborative, I have to say. Yeah.
2: Um, now I, I watched a video with him some time ago. It might have been when the movie was out or shortly after the movie was out, where he was talking about like all the symbolism that's kind of floating throughout that movie. Like there's a stag in the room that they take the main character to at the end, and he, and when he pulls up the armrest, there's cotton. He's pulling cotton. Like there's all all this kind of uh, a lot of very racial symbolism that Jordan Peele baked into it. Was he uh, in regular communication with everybody on set about where that needed to be, I, I mean, I'm, I guess I assume he, he had to be, but like, were you very aware of some of that stuff?
0: Yeah, he wasn't going out of his way to to spell it out to everybody, because, mm-hmm. but he was making sure that certain elements were there. You'd have to ask him a bit more in depth exactly how much of that he wasn't. He wasn't making a big meal of that on set. Put it that way.
2: Well. So I want to move also on to Happy Death Day, which uh, in oh, the right. yeah. in the image uh, <laughs> the image of you that I'm seeing, I'm seeing like the very corner of the Happy Death Day uh, post. Oh, yeah, uh, sorry,
0: it's it's here. Yes, that's
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> With something like Happy Death Day, where you're kind of in a uh, the tritest way to put it, but it's a Groundhog Day kind of a story where we're repeating yeah. the the same yeah. motif. Yeah, yeah. How uh, were there considerations about? How you reveal new details, how you add that visual arc that we were talking about earlier to something where b- by its very definition, it's repeating.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was the key. That was the core of the whole thing was when we're repeat, in that repeating world, how are we changing the viewpoint slightly mm-hmm. from what it was the first time we went through it? At the, and with a lot of it, sometimes it was just realising, oh, God, she's back in the same world again, and then it would just change and the perspective would change slightly. But you'd be, we'd be forever um, going back and doing, setting up the same thing over again, especially with Happy Death Day, the whole sequence in the dorm room was mm. the thing that just drove everyone crazy because you'd just be sitting up, she wakes up out of bed and he's near by the desk, he bumps his head, he gets up and says, whoa, you're up. And so we literally did that a billion times. And the funny thing was we had to set it up. We didn't just shoot it once over, say, a two-day period, like all of those scenes, because there had to be pickups. And so they built that set during the main shoot. And then there was... It had to be... Then at the very end of the main shoot, we had to go back to that set and rebuild it again for some extra stuff that needed to be added on because Chris was just making adjustments to the script. And then six months later or five months or whatever it was after it had been edited and the studio wanted to add some scenes or change a couple of things so then we had to go back and they rebuilt the set again for the third time and added some more stuff but all in that moment of that morning when she wakes up
2: must have felt like like you were in a time loop so we were
0: kind of in our own groundhog day of shooting that set (laughs) that this kind of this wouldn't go away and then Sure enough, there was the sequel, Happy Death Day to You. And guess what? We had to go back and build the same set again <laughs> and redo it again.
2: So a decision you made for letting one set ripple through your life for over a year?
0: Oh, yeah, almost two years. Yeah, yeah, oh, wow. we had to just keep re- recreating it, whether I liked oh, it or not. I, even I said, oh, look, I wish I'd done it, this is a, <laughs> wish I'd done it differently too bad. had to just keep recreating it over and over and over. So we, it really was our own Happy death day in lighting. So that was fun. But, I mean, that was the point of the movie, too. So you knew why was fundamental to the whole thing, the whole concept.
2: Cool. Well, I think that that uh, takes us to a really good place. Is there any place that people can find you online if they're looking to see your work or they want to interact with you on social media, Instagram, Twitter, any of those things?
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm on Instagram, uh, TobyOliverDP. I can interact there, and um, I put up stuff you know, some film stuff, but also just photography stuff as well. So I haven't I haven't got that, you know, it's not just a work thing. Um, but, uh, and I have my website, so com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, I always, always love to hear from people. In fact, um, someone contacted me through, I think it was through the website um, a little while ago and she was a student at Florida State University and I ended up doing a guest lecture oh, there. Wow. Um, during the this whole COVID thing so and um, I really I really love doing those kind of chats with with film school students and uh, it's a lot of fun and it's great to be able to share share stuff and give a little bit back
2: so excellent so hear us film students reach out to Toby Oliver and have him come speak to your class
0: (laughs) well not everybody Everybody. (laughs) at the same time (laughs) (laughs) all at once Uh, thank you
2: so much for coming on here we really appreciate it Toby
0: yeah no problem at all it was a real pleasure thanks Uh, thanks Ben thanks Alana
2: All right. So that was Toby Oliver. Thank you again, Toby, for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure to meet you. Maybe we get to do it in person one day. That would be awesome. Maybe next time I can do it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So Ilya, you know what time it is right now? No, no. What, what, What time is it? It is time to pay those bills. <laughs> All right, bill paying time. Hey, we got to thank our sponsor for the show, Aperture. Aperture, maker of fine uh, LED lighting products and the occasional monitor and some other uh, interesting things. I want to talk about the lantern. The lantern is a light modifier. It clips onto most of the front of their lights. It's got what's known as a Bowens mount on it, so it's compatible with not only their products but other people's products who utilize the Bowens mount system. But it's eighty nine bucks. I mean. 89 bucks, and it is probably the most versatile light modifier that they make. It allows you to create essentially a space light, or what uh, some people might refer to as like a, a gem ball, which is essentially a large, open, diffuse soft box. And so if you needed 360 degree of light heading in all directions, like a soft sort of like general ambience, or if you needed it to serve more like a space light and where it's got a skirt around it, so it's not having light travel in every direction, but mostly just downward, you can create a, a lot of ambient with any light.
2: I got to check that out. That sounds awesome. I mean, like I was, as you know, I was always into Chinese lanterns for, uh, for lighting. I, I'm a big fan of that look
3: and you can absolutely use it as that and uh, like I said it's really really inexpensive it sets up and breaks down uh, nearly instantaneously it doesn't require any special skills or tools to use it and the velcro skirt that is removable allows you to direct light and so I have people all the time ask me oh should I get the light dome 2 the light dome mini 2 what which product should I get I actually tell them quite often, hey, if you can only pick one thing and you want the most versatility, uh, you need to take a serious look at the lantern. It can absolutely kind of step into some of those other roles if you need it to. And it gives you some other options, which is which is really fun. And for under 100 bucks, it is a bargain. Total bargain.
2: Yeah, For me, that's like it's my go to light if I'm lighting an interview and I just want really flattering light on the person's face.
3: Agreed. It's great for I that. I gotta
2: check that. Pro- I, I was unaware of that product. I'm not. I'm not making. I'm not doing a bit. I, I was honestly unaware of it, so I'm gonna check it out as soon as we're done.
1: And now, short ends. Uh, so Ben, you got a
3: obsession this week. You got a got a short yeah. end for us.
2: Well, uh, mine is a for real obsession. I guess as always, I I always get hung up on stuff, and it's sort of a question because NAB was canceled, and NAB would have been about two weeks ago. And I'm looking at like some of the companies, and uh, specifically one of the companies I always look to see like what new stuff they're going to offer at NAB is Adobe, and you know I use their their post suite. I use Premiere and Audition and after Effects, Photoshop, I use, you know, all that stuff a lot. And uh, right and NAB, they always announce a bunch of new stuff. Now, I don't have any inside scoop on, on Adobe, what's going on over there, but they've really only announced one new thing in Premiere, and that's a thing called Productions that's sort of a way... It's like a project management thing. And usually they have a whole new suite that comes out at at NAB. But I was wondering if you've noticed other manufacturers or companies that usually announce something cool and new at NAB, if there's a, a pattern of them being a little like holding off on the announcements right now.
3: I haven't seen them really holding off on the announcements. I've seen several companies that have made announcements, but I think that if there's not a lot of fanfare um, at the moment and there isn't like a hard and fast need to stick to a schedule, you probably have some people uh, going, well, you know what? Maybe we'll push this back a few weeks just to see what happens. Maybe we'll be out of this in a few weeks or, or something. Yeah. The, the <laughs> thing about NAB is that uh, because you have so many people all sort of gathered in one place and so much media you kind of get a little bump if you're a small uh, if you're a smaller entity now Adobe is not a smaller entity so I don't think that they need yeah. the bump that they might get from other uh, uh, announcements happening all at a similar time so I don't know maybe they weren't planning on making a huge announcement this year i I, I don't
2: know that would just be so unusual, like every year they make a giant announcement, and I know that right now they're probably, probably their main competition is Blackmagic, uh. who, who just keeps upping the game with Resolve every year, and Resolve, you know, already came out with a new version, and I was just, I'm sort of, I'm just a little a little gobsmacked by the fact that they haven't released anything.
3: Yeah. uh, I I can't speak to Adobe. It hasn't been on my radar, but then again, you know, NAB didn't happen. So it's, it's, uh, (laughs) that's one of those things. My uh, short end this week is uh, Netflix. Actually, Netflix did something interesting and they have a really, really interesting uh, blog that is dated April 2nd, so just in the last, uh, basically a month ago. Uh, It's called Bringing 4K and HDR to Anime with uh, Netflix and Sol Levante. I think it's pronounced Levante. I actually haven't seen the the animation, but I have downloaded a bunch of files that they made available. Essentially, they took files, like mastering files for this feature length uh, made for Netflix animated feature, and they made them available to anyone who would like to download them and work with them to essentially figure out a standard dynamic range or high dynamic range workflow and kind of showing differences between what what they did and they provide flow charts and all kinds of other stuff so if you are actually a professional in this space and working with 4k files and hdr is something that uh, is interesting to you or you're trying to get a handle on it you can actually go to their blog their blog breaks down basically the project, gives you the backstory, and then uh, shows the workflow via some really uh, interesting uh, charts and graphs, and then explains the, you know, the, the trials and tribulations that they went through to get things. And one of the points that they make, spoiler alert, is that part of it was mastered at a thousand nits. And a thousand nits is really, really bright. In fact, actually they mentioned that it's so bright that uh, at times sort of the desktop interface, they couldn't actually use the interface as it was at a thousand nits because it was so bright it was you know overpowering and blinding and uh, I'll make the argument that no one needs a thousand nits ever a thousand nits is just like incredibly bright Uh, most people's television sets at least traditional television sets never got above like maybe 20 nits so the idea oh really yeah a thousand is like is is ridiculous looking looking into an eclipse yes Um, so but uh, a a lot of a lot of TV sets uh, modern TV sets can go much much higher at least three hundred and, and that sort of thing but uh mastering at a thousand nits is is incredibly bright and i don't think that that is uh i don't think that that's in our future nor that we we really need it but uh netflix is making the case saying uh here it is we did it here's the information here's the background and if you would like the after effects uh projects, the pro tool sessions, animatic storyboards, you can download all of these assets. And for someone out there who wants to actually see how the pros put it together and how are figuring this out, it's a really incredible resource that, you know, most studios are not saying, "Yeah, here you go. Have access to some of our our assets. Have access to the actual files that we were using." That that's really big. That's really kind of amazing for the the creator set out there who wants to work at a professional level and see what the real professional file formats are and figure out how to work with it. It's, it's amazing. That is cool. I'll check that out. That's really interesting. Yes, I actually recommended it to Kays. I think Kays would get a big kick out of it.
2: Kays, who I still need to set up the interview with. He said he'd do it. So, <laughs> Alright, well uh, I'm holding
3: you to that. <laughs> so speaking of Kaze, who do we need to thank for this week's episode? Well, let's thank Kaze. Let's let's thank him right now. We'll say, Kaze, thank you very much for for the music. It was wonderful. Uh, we've got uh, another War Story episode coming out really soon, and uh, we're there's going to be a, a ton more Kaze music inside of that.
2: Beating the shit out of the Kay's library. We sure are. Uh, we also need to thank Alana Cody, who is under uh, quarantine conditions, just cranking on getting us more and more interviews. I think we recorded
3: three last week alone that's, it's so good. I actually got, you know, uh next time we do this, we probably need to read a few thank you emails because I've been getting some th- emails and messages from people saying, "Hey, when's the next episode?" or "I'm so glad we've gotten these episodes or, you know, what 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 else is in the works?" So, uh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, which is uh which is great. So, I'm glad people are listening and paying attention, and I think I think we might have hit an all-time high for uh for March or February for downloads. So, yeah, we're uh we're we're really kind of kind of moving along. So, that's
2: great. Kicking ass. And I really feel like so much of the credit for that goes to Alana and uh, uh, lastly, as always, we want to thank Ben Katz, our uh, phenomenal editor who works double time to make us not sound like morons.
3: That's right. Thanks. Thanks, Ben, because I, I know you have your work cut out for you.
2: It is not easy to not make me sound like a moron. Just let me talk. Uh. <laughs> anyway,
3: Ilya, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. Where you can also find uh, everything that you might ever want to buy for this industry
2: assuming that we ever make movies again that's right you can as always find me at benrockonline.com i I was very excited and kind of hovering over benrock.com which went up on like the person licensing it uh their license ended on april the 30th and who know who knew that they were going to do this since they're not using it for anything they re-upped it until
3: 2024 oh god oh no Super frustrating. Uh, it's not even the I'm motorboat never, company I'm, anymore.
2: I'm, uh. It, uh, yeah. It, no, it hasn't been a motorboat company since like 2002. Sorry, so, ben. uh, yeah whatever it's, it, it, it adds spice to my life that, that I have this, uh, this desperate need to have BenRock.com, but not an ability to have it. Could you do like,
3: you know, you have a middle initial Ben T rock or something.
2: Well, I just went with Ben rock online because Ben, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah I got it. it I know. got it. I get it. Okay. Because I like my name. My name my, it's a catchy name. It's the one th- I got. It's the one thing I have. It's all I have, Ilya. I have a catchy sounding name. I'm not taking it away from you.
3: No. Don't take my name. <laughs> anyway. All right. So so Ben, they can find you at Ben Rock. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe and we're going to be back really really soon with some bonus episodes.
2: Yes. Lots of bonus. We're going to keep the content flowing all the way through quarantine
3: times. That's right. The content is not stopping.
2: Well, I guess that wraps it up, and uh, we have some amazing stuff coming up, and uh, we'll see you next week, if not before, at the Cinematography Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe.
1: This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.